This is The First Years, a podcast about the unicorns of American agriculture, first-generation farmers, and the guts, grit, determination, and business prowess required to be one. Welcome to this episode of The First Years Podcast. I am thrilled today to have Robert Mills Jr. on the show to share with us um, his journey from being just a kid in a subdivision to having a farm. So Robert, tell me about your farm today. What does your farm look like? Well, uh, Briarview Farms is located in Callens, Virginia. Uh, we farm about 2,200 acres. We actually farm in three different counties. Uh, we have a 300 uh, mama cow, cow calf operation. I have a uh, pullet breeder operation uh, through uh, Purdue and uh, where we grow out uh, 34,000 uh, pullets annually. Uh, we raise uh, three different types of tobacco. We have organic flu-cured tobacco, traditional flu-cured tobacco, and Virginia fire-cured tobacco. And we also, uh, this year is our first year, we're actually doing some industrial hemp uh, research for uh, one of the state land-grant universities and a uh, a bioenergy uh, company or bioscience company out of uh, Danville, Virginia. So we're a pretty diverse operation and um, it keeps us busy all, all year round. Yeah, you, um, I, I think you're the most diversified farmer I have ever talked to, which is really cool. <laughs> and, and then you throw in another 450 acres of hay that we make as well. <laughs> so uh, there, there is no idle time around this place. Which is great. But you didn't start out, you didn't grow up on a farm. Tell us a little bit about your entrance into farming. Yeah, big story. And um, I grew up on an acre lot in a subdivision right outside of Danville, Virginia. And, um, but I did live in the county. So I was, um, when I started my eighth grade at Blair's Junior High School, uh, I had signed up for an Agriculture One class as one of my electives. And uh, after about two weeks of this class, um, I just fell in love with agriculture and said, you know, I really want to make this, you know, my uh, occupation for the rest of my life to be involved in agriculture. And I got really involved in FFA, the Future Farmers of America. And it was real, real unique that, you know, this kid from the subdivision who basically had no ag background, um, really fell in love with the industry and um, that year when I was 13 I uh, the FFA had a program called the SAE program which is a supervised agricultural experience and uh, that was part of my class that I um, well part of the FFA and program was that I could you know could grow you know some crops or vegetables or something and had to keep records on it and all that and and that was my first experience. I actually grew vegetables uh, when I was 13 years old and um, sold those vegetables. And that was my SAE project. And um, that's where Briarview Farms began uh, when I was 13 years old. That's it's it's crazy. And it's um, something that I think we hope agriculture programs throughout the country are doing for students that didn't d didn't grow up on a farm. Um, when you decided and you, you started telling people, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a farmer someday. This is what I want to do with my life. Did people just, just line up to support you or, or did you get a little pushback? Well, 
the pushback started immediately. And um, I, I came home one day from school and um, I told my parents, I said, you know, I've decided, you know, what I want to do with the rest of my life and my occupation, I want to farm for a living. Well, you know, this is a 13 year old kid, you know, telling, you know, their parents who, you know, both of them work public work. And, and, and I told them, I said, yeah, I want to farm. And, and both of them kind of laughed and they said, yeah, you know, son, you're not going to be able to do that because we don't have land. We don't have money. We don't have machinery. You know, we just, we just don't have anything to help you do that. And, um, you know, it's nice you want to do that, but that's just something that we just don't feel like you're going to be able to do, and we don't want you to be disappointed. And, um, you know, like most kids are 13 years old when their parents tell them not to do something or they can't do something, it makes you want to do it that much worse. And um, so we started. But, you know, you know, my parents, you know, immediately were like, you're not going to be able to do that. But I will tell you they have been the, the biggest supporters that I've ever had in my life. From that SAE project, um, and, you know, started that when I was 13 and, and continued to grow vegetables on up until I was about, uh, about 18. Before I had a driver's license, my dad would come home from, from working all day and I would have my vegetables all packaged up and ready for delivery. And, uh, he drove me all around the County delivering my vegetables to those people who had ordered them. So they were very, very supportive in the fact that they wanted to help me because they knew how much I loved it, but they never, ever dreamed that it would become a full-time occupation for me. And the, it wasn't a, it wasn't a quick journey from that vegetable patch to a full-time occupation either. I mean, I read that it took you 17 years. Um, yeah, it was from that time. It took a lot longer. I'm not a very patient person. Um, <laughs> and it took a lot longer, uh, than I ever would have dreamed, but I'll be honest with you. Um, if you took any one piece out of the puzzle over the last 17 years, uh, it, it never, it never would have happened, um, from the, from that time that I decided I wanted to farm until I became a full-time farmer in 2001. Um, you know, the good and the bad, um, you know, starting off in agriculture, it, it is a real capital intense industry. And, uh, I had a lot to learn. And I remember when I was, uh, I was 15 years old when I bought my first tractor. Uh, when I had that, when I was raising those vegetables, my dad actually had a garden tractor, a 1952 80 and Ford, and uh, a few little small pieces of equipment. That's what I actually started with. But when I was 15, I, I got a letter of credit from the bank for $3,000, and I went to an equipment sale, and I bought my first tractor for $2,900 and did not have a ride home. Uh, my dad had dropped me <laughs> off at the sale on his way to work, and I bought the tractor and I actually called a buddy of mine uh, who had just got his driver's license, whose dad farmed and said, look, can you come pick me up and bring a trailer to get this tractor that I just bought? And um, and that's the first, you know, that was the first tractor I bought. But, you know, when I was 14, um, after my second crop of vegetables, I bought my first piece of equipment, and that was a bush hog. And uh, I remember today I, I paid $416 for it. I mean, that was big money uh, when you're 14 years old. But, um, you know, for Christmas, my parents, you know, all the kids in the neighborhood, they got bicycles and motorcycles and things like that. I got farm equipment. And, um, you know, my dad would find a, a piece of used farm equipment and he'd fix it up and paint it up and put a bow on it. And that's what was sitting in the yard on Christmas morning when I got up to see what Santa Claus had brought. So, um it's, it's just an incredible journey to see 
where we started and what we started with and uh, to see where we're at today and, and the equipment that we have to, to work with now. Yeah, you you have said that one of your biggest challenges um, in getting your farm started was access to capital, and I don't I don't think that we um, as an industry talk about that quite enough. That um, when you're a young person and you don't have any assets, the ability to borrow money um, is really tough. Can you can you speak to that a little bit from your experience? Yeah, and I I tell you what this this is where people come in, and you know, business is business, but, but people, people are unique. And that loan officer, uh, when I was 15 years old, that wrote me that line of credit, he, he actually was vice president of the bank and lived in the subdivision at which we lived. And he saw something in me that set me apart of people, you know, who, who he lends money to every day. And he saw that passion that I had inside of me and he was willing to take a risk with that kid. Um, the same thing when I bought my first barn, uh, my first farm, um, this same gentleman at the bank said, you know, you find a farm and we'll, we'll finance it. Don't worry about it. And, and at that time I still didn't, you know, I, I, I used all, oh, I had all old equipment and, you know, a, a paintbrush will do a whole lot for a piece of old equipment. I, my philosophy was, was always just because I own junk, it didn't have to look like it. So, you know, we bought stuff and fixed it up. And, and you know, when, when I bought my first farm, that same bank that loaned me that $3,000 um, to buy, well, that $2,900 to buy that tractor was the one that, that gave me $100,000 to buy that first farm. And um, that, um, that gentleman passed away. And when he did, I started moving my business to, uh, to farm credit. And um, I can remember... When I was um, I was 28 years old, and I and I was fixing to you know um, wanted to build my chicken house, and um, I walked in Farm Credit. They didn't know who I was, and uh, I walked in and said, "I got an opportunity to build a chicken house. Will you loan me the money?" And Farm Credit never turned around. They said, "Absolutely. How much do you need? And let's get started." And uh, from that point on, I've had a wonderful relationship. Uh, with that lending institution, and they have supported me all the all these years since 2001, and um, they've never they've never asked any questions. It was what do you need and when do you need it, and um, you know, a lot of people it, it is hard to get capital, but um, mm-hmm. there are still lending institutions out there that look not only at what your assets are and you know what but they look at the people. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that the young farmers need to do is, is they need to get out there and, and let themselves be known and build that personal relationship, uh, with these lending institutions, because getting money can be difficult and, um, you've got to do something to set yourself apart from anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one thing that I read that you, um, really excel at is that, um, one of your goals is for somebody to be able to to drive past one of your farms and know that it's you that farms it. Um, and, yeah, and I read, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I read that you, um, worked off the farm for quite some time when you were starting out. Um, and that, that influenced, um, the way that you manage your farms now. Yeah. You know, we, we we live in a day and age where we want everything 
immediately. And, uh, and I wanted to farm full-time immediately, but there was another plan laid out for me that I didn't know about, and I'm glad I didn't at the time. Um, but when I got out of uh, – I graduated from Virginia Tech and with an ag business degree and um, was hired by a, a farm supply business and was made the store manager immediately. I was 21 years old and, uh, and had a multimillion-dollar business that I was in charge of managing. Now, that wasn't my dream to do that, but it was a good opportunity for me to be a part of the industry and to be able to continue to farm, you know, part time. But what I didn't realize at the time is that job made me a much better farmer because I learned so much about seeds and chemicals and business and and all those things that that I had learned at Virginia Tech, but but made it practical when I started that job. And I was in that job actually for three years and um, I left that job and went to be the conservation specialist for Pennsylvania County, working for the Soil and Water Conservation District. And uh, there I was introduced to all these types of conservation measures, whether it's watering systems for cattle and fencing cattle out, or waterways and buffer strips on my crop fields and terracing and uh, contour farm, all those things I learned. And when you take the agronomics that I learned from being the manager of the farm supply business, and you put it with the uh, with the conservation efforts that I had to do in the job that I had. Um, those things combined with a passion for agriculture all came together to make me the farmer that I am today. And that's what I said earlier. If you took any one piece out of the puzzle, none of this ever happened. Everything was laid out perfectly. It just took time to do it. Yeah, I think that's um, one of the hardest lessons to learn in life is that it's it's never really our time schedule that things happen on um at least that's what i believe and i um i think that's for somebody like you and for somebody like me that's very driven um that's a, a hard lesson learned in patience it is um you know i i i, I pray for patience and um <laughs> then i get opportunities to learn how to have patience and, <laughs> that's exactly um, right and uh you know all through you, you know, this whole journey that we've had, I've, I've never been satisfied with where we were at. And, uh, you know, we constantly wanted to, to get larger and, and, and to more diversify. And, um, you know, some days I'm 45 years old now, and there's days that I look back and, I, and, I, and, and I'm disappointed about where I'm at. I think I should be further along. But then, I, you know, this uh, award that we won last year really made me reflect and to think about that 13 year old kid on a, on an iron seat on a 1952 Ford tractor and where we are today. Um, you know, I think we've done pretty good over the period of time that we've, we've had to do it. Um, but I've got 30 landowners that I rent land from as well. And, you know, those landowners have been there for me. You know, we've never lost a farm. Those landowners have stayed with me. Um, and and they've, uh, when, when somebody uh, retires in the neighborhood, um, that person comes to me and to my family and says, hey, would you like to work our farm? So it's, it's one of those things that we're continuing to, to strive to build up our operation. Um, but now I'm even more encouraged because my oldest son is committed to coming back here and farming full time with his dad. So um, that's re that's reignited that fire that I had when I was younger. Um, now that he's back, you know, coming back with me, 
for us to never never look back and to keep pushing forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you were approached by Purdue Farms when you were still working for the Conservation District and, and adding the chickens to your operation is what allowed you um, to farm full time. Can you talk just a little bit about about why diversification has been important to your business? And um, and I, I assume that that's something you recommend to to other you know farmers that are just getting started. Absolutely. Um, you know, it was it was kind of funny when um, when I was working in the conservation, I was in the office the day the gentleman from Purdue came in and uh, he said, I'm looking for Robert Mills. And I said, well, that's me. He said, well, everywhere I've been um, and talked to different businesses and let them know that we're putting a poultry division in your county, uh, your name keeps coming up to, as someone that we need to talk to that really wants to farm full time. And uh, I said, yes, sir. I said, I do want to farm full time. He said, well, well, let me talk to you. We're going to we're going to build some poultry houses and see if you may be interested. And I kind of laughed and I said, I said, man, you're wasting your time. I said, I am not interested in a chicken house. And he said, why is that? And I said, I took a poultry science class at Virginia Tech. And when I walked out of that class, I said, I never wanted to see another chicken. And uh, <laughs> we, he said, well, just give me a, he said, just give me a minute. And I said, okay. And he said, let me show you, uh, show you a cash flow statement uh, for one of our pullet houses. And when he laid that on my desk and I looked at that bottom number of what my net income would be from that chicken house, it was the same salary that I was making working for the Soil and Water Conservation District. And what I saw was a ticket home. And uh, we started our dialogue and, um, app and interviewed with them several times. And uh, they allowed me to, to build a poultry house. And, and that is, that is the only, that, it, that poultry house is the one thing that allowed me to be able to come home. And what was so neat about the poultry house is you know, up to that point, I, I had I was I had some cattle and I was raising some tobacco and I was doing it, you know, part time, but I was having to do it at night. And, um, mm. you know, you work all day, then you farm all night. It, it makes you old really quick. And uh, <laughs> what I saw was an opportunity to be able to come home and work an hour a day in the chicken house for the same salary that I was making. And they gave me a 15 year contract. So I was locked in good for 15 years. And uh, it made that decision pretty easy. And uh, October the 12th, 2001 is when I walked out of that office for the last time and became a full-time farmer. And that poultry house is the catalyst that launched us in that direction. And by being home all day, every day, uh, we were able to really start expanding our operation. And, um, you know, I'll be quite honest with you. I love the tobacco more than anything. That's what I love growing tobacco. Um, cattle work really nice. They complement growing tobacco and some small grain and things. Um, the chicken house, to be honest, is probably my least favorite because it's got four walls and it's not outside. But <laughs> it is the most important component at Briarview Farms is that poultry house because that's the steady check that comes, whether it's dry weather or whether it's wet, that check comes every week. And that's what you need to have as a young producer coming into the in, to full-time operation is you've got to have some steady income as well as diversification to help you with your cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really sound advice. Um, I'm really interested to learn more about growing tobacco because I know nothing about it. And to be honest, I laughed out loud 
when I read that you grow organic tobacco because I'm really perplexed that there's consumer demand for organic tobacco. So can you tell us more about growing tobacco? I've only met one other tobacco farm in my whole entire life. Um, I met a gal that through Farm Bureau that grows tobacco in uh, Kentucky. And I was really intrigued talking with her too, um, just because of, of how manual that crop still is to grow. Can you share just some just some like tobacco highlights. I think that our friends listening would be really interested. Yeah, growing tobacco is probably the hardest work that I have ever done in my life. But it's a very rewarding plant to grow because it's a beautiful plant. It responds well when you make decisions on management on the tobacco. But um, we, you know, if you talk to a young lady in Kentucky, they probably grew burly tobacco which is another another style of tobacco that we've actually grown here on the farm but it doesn't do well in the uh in the climate that we have here so we quit growing burley but uh, flu cure tobacco and i'll talk a little bit about traditional versus organic but uh flu cure tobacco uh it's you you seed it in a greenhouse uh and you you transplant it uh you transplant a a small uh plant and uh the tobacco has to be cultivated uh, we have equipment. We, we cultivate tobacco almost every day to get over 100. We've raised a little over 100 acres. And um, it's uh, a real high-intensity management crop, um, whether it's uh, for, for insects or for disease um, or for, for weed pressure. So it's a lot of cultivation. And, um, and then the, the plant, when the plant gets um, mature or when it gets uh, its flowers, uh, this plant's trying to make seed just like any other plant, and you manually go out there by hand and break the flower out of every plant. Now, to kind of put this into perspective, uh, we've got a little over 100 acres of tobacco, and it's 6,200 plants to the acre. So you start doing oh the math, God. and you physically break that flower out of every plant, and then you spray a sucker side um, in the top of that plant. And what a sucker side is 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 that plant's priority is to reproduce. And there's three more little plants. It's 22 leaves to the plant. And in each one of those leaf axes where it connects to the stalk, there's three more little plants that want to come out of that to reproduce. So this sucker side, what it does is it kills those three little plants that are wanting to come out of that leaf axis so that you divert all of your growth into that leaf which is the product that you're going to harvest and, and sell. Now, where flu cure tobacco is different from burley is we actually harvest the leaves in stalk positions in the field, meaning uh, we'll go in in uh, late July and we'll pull the bottom four leaves off of the plant and take it to a barn and physically cure that tobacco with forced air, humidity, and heat. And then about two weeks later, we'll come through and we'll pull four more leaves off. And then about two more weeks, we come through and pull four more leaves off. And then at the very end, you'll pull all the leaves that's in the top. Now, if you can imagine a plant, those four leaves are right on the ground. So you walk down the road, bent over, pulling those leaves. And you pull them and, and put them under your arm until your arm's full. And then you carry them to a trailer and put them in the trailer. And then we carry the trailer to the barn to put them in. Pulling ground leaves is the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And um, 
we have we have a crew that works with us that and that's what they do is pull tobacco. Thank goodness I don't have to pull tobacco anymore. I'm too busy <laughs> curing tobacco and hauling trailers up and down the road. But that process we start harvesting the last week of July and we will not finish up until about the fifteenth of October. And we'll pull about a hundred and ten or fifteen barns. And um, it's about 2,500 pounds of cured leaf comes out of those barns each time. And we, we grow uh, around 270,000 pounds of, uh, of cured tobacco. Now, the difference in the traditional and the organic, a lot of people do laugh, so you're not by yourself uh, when you say <laughs> organic just, tobacco. <laughs> yeah. It, um, organic tobacco is as close to 1607 Jamestown as you can get. It, um, we, we use all organic fertilizer. We, we use, um, we use chicken litter or, or waste from, from poultry. Then, and these birds ate organic corn and organic soybeans so that the litter or the waste is organic. And, uh, we use that. Uh, we use a sulfate of potash for our potash, which is a naturally occurring potash. And then we use a nitrate of soda, which is a natural nitrogen source. Uh, for our fertilizer, we have absolutely no weed control. There's no chemicals that are OMRI OMRI approved is means it's okay for organic because I have to be certified and I have to follow a lot of rules and regulations. And I get audited every year. My books get audited and my farm gets inspected. So you, you don't play around. You only use approved <laughs> chemicals. Um, so we have no herbicides. So the only way we can keep grass and weeds out is to cultivate it or manually chop it with a hill and hoe. And a lot of people don't know what a hill and hoe is, but it's a long stick with a metal blade on the end of it, and you physically chop the grass out. Um, and uh, for worms, uh, we do have a chemical, but it's not toxic. It's a neurological chemical that the worm eats, and then the worm forgets. We spray this chemical on there, and the worm forgets to eat, and he starves to death. Um, the chemical's safe. I could drink it, and it doesn't bother me. Uh, I don't drink it, but I'm just saying it's not a poison. It's, <laughs> well, it's not good. a poison chemical, but it only carries a caution label, just like a lot of household goods do. Um, so, and that's the only—that's really the only insecticide we've got—is for worms. And uh, so, but there's there's a lot of different insects that love organic tobacco, and uh, so there's some cultural things that we do. There's some plants that you can plant sunflowers around the field. There's different. Uh, uh, integrated pest management programs you can do to help alleviate some of your pest control. And then on the sucker side, on the traditional, uh, we spray it one time uh, on the uh, on the traditional side. And on the organic side, we have to spray it every six days for six weeks. So it's pretty intense And in how many times we have to pass over the field uh, to try to keep those suckers at bay. And the chemical that we use uh, for the sucker side is a food-grade fatty alcohol that just burns those little suckers. And uh, it's, it's not harmful. It's, it's a food grade. So um, it's pretty safe. And uh, we harvest the tobacco the same way, but it's put in barns that have been certified, that are clean. And um, we, we cure the tobacco the same way we do the traditional. It cures a little different because of the fertilizers we use. Um, but at the end of the day, when we take the tobacco to have it sold, they sample every single bale. That's an 800-pound bale. They sample every single bale when I sell it and do a chemical analysis 
to make sure that I have not used anything on that tobacco that is not listed uh, under the Omri's uh, certification. So it's a pretty high intense crop, but it pays twice the money that traditional tobacco does. So um, that's pretty so good money for us. And <laughs> it, it's worth it. It absolutely is worth it. And I'll be honest with you, the crop really doesn't cost us a lot more money uh, because we don't use chemicals. And, uh, you know, chemicals are expensive. So, you know, the, the money that we save on chemical, we may use a little more in some hand labor. But um, it's been a real good venture for us. But, you know, you're talking about an organic uh, cigarette. Is it a safe cigarette? No. Um, however, it actually has no chemical residue at all. So theoretically and technically, yeah, it is um, because it doesn't have any chemical residue. It still has the natural carcinogens and the nicotines and all that a traditional cigarette does, but you don't have to worry about uh, chemical residue. And what we have found is in the organic movement that we have not only here in the United States, but we have in our, on our um, other countries around the world, they want a, what they feel like is a safer cigarette. And uh, that, market has, uh, that market came about about 20 years ago. But that market really took off about five or six years ago. And um, a, the, a pack of organic cigarettes is only about a dollar more than a traditional pack. And, um, you know, folks that uh, want to enjoy a cigarette, they feel better about it because it's organic. Hmm. That's so interesting. Well, I've loved learning about tobacco from you. Um, there's, there's one question that I ask every person that comes on the podcast. Um, and that is, you know, do you, to what do you credit your success? Do you think that it's luck, you know, timing, or do you think it's skill or maybe a combination of both? What do you think? I'll be honest with you. I think probably one of the biggest things is sacrifice. I think today we, we as Americans especially want things easy. We want them right now and we want them as easy as possible. And, um, me and my family have sacrificed a lot over the years um, to be able to do what we do. I can remember when I was in high school, all of my friends went to the beach and I went to work. And um, when, I, when I bought my farm, I lived in a mobile home. Um, we, we never had a new vehicle. We always had a, you know used cars and used trucks. And um, very, very rarely did we ever go out to eat. Uh, we had to be pretty frugal and, and we sacrificed so that we could be able to purchase land and buy cows and, and, and really try to stay in business. So I think any, any young person or anybody that's interested in getting in, you know, in the agricultural uh, production side of the business um, needs to know that there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And, um, and, the, and along with that, you've got to have passion. And I don't care what job you have or, or, or what career choice you have. If you're not passionate about what you're doing, then you need to find something else to do. Um, because those people are, are that are most successful in life and meet their goals and dreams are those that are very passionate about what they do. They don't do it because they have to. They don't do it for the money. They do it because they love it. And um, mm -hmm. I think that's something that we forget a lot of time, find our passion in life. I'm very fortunate that I found my passion at a very early age. I talk to, I, I travel and speak to, to young people a lot. And um, I'm really blown away by how many young people today 
who are 18 to 25 years old that really don't know what they want to do with their life. And um, you need to figure that out before you take off and, uh, and be passionate about what you do. I heard somebody say one time that um, your hobby needs to be your career because your hobby is mm-hmm. what you enjoy doing. And uh, for me, um, my hobby is agriculture and farming. And uh, I can't think of another occupation I'd rather have than what we do right here at Briarview Farms. Well, I think that's just an excellent way to end um, this episode of the show, Robert. It was so great to have you on. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed learning about your farm and um, learning about your journey to becoming a farmer. And um, until next week, guys, that was this week's episode of of the first years. And have a great week. Make them shine.